welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Basically, since ATA is coming up later this week, I wanted to, number one, kind of talk about, have a pre-ATA discussion, what things we think we might see, what things we would like to see, um, and then things that I, in particular, should like want to stop and check out in a little bit more detail, because of course I'm going to be there this year. Uh, so then, <clears throat> in addition to that, since I don't know if we'll fill up the whole podcast talking about just ATA stuff, I want to also kind of rehash the whole broadhead narrow thing, because we talked with a couple of different people and we had our own thoughts kind of going into the season on broadhead style, arrow weight and all that kind of stuff. And I definitely went a lot different in terms of what I would normally have used in the past. So I wanted to kind of, now that the season is over, go back and talk about those things again and, and give additional thoughts. So you want to start with the ATA, then go to arrows. If we don't fill up the whole podcast with the ATA, which I don't figure we will. Yeah. Let's start with ATA. So it's a couple day show. I'm flying out on Wednesday, and then I believe the show is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then afterwards I'm basically uh, flying. Yeah. I'm basically flying right from uh, Louisville up to New York for work the next day. So I'm, I'm basically going to be gone from my house for like a week straight almost. Man, yeah, kind of kind of crazy how that worked out just timing wise because it's like I'll have just enough time to basically get done with one thing and go on to the next. But I'm looking forward to it because I've never been there. I've wanted to go the last couple of years, and it's just never really worked out. So so I know you're going with Dan as part of the Sportsman Nation. Yep. Um, are you guys planning anything special for that? Or like you doing video for Dan? Or how is this kind of all coming together for you? Because I know you've wanted to go, yep. um, first opportunity to go. So I'm kind of curious to how this, what's kind of the plan in that aspect? Yeah, so definitely first and foremost, going to be looking for good kind of content to be able to maybe meet up with people or schedule things for podcasts in the future. So that's definitely a really big part of it. Um, there's certain things that I want to take video clips of, um, and we can maybe post that on the Sportsman's Nation YouTube page just to kind of support some of those things as far as uh, podcast as well. And then in addition, I think I'll probably I'll have my camera with me the whole time, so I might just film some stuff for fun and and maybe do some additional things that don't really make sense for podcasts, but then still kind of post them on, on YouTube anyway. So are you, are you going with Dan as more of, um, you know, kind of Dan interviewing people about their new products? Um, or is it more of just, you're both going kind of independently to create connections, find content for the network, or is it a dedicated kind of video ATA coverage? So if somebody was looking for ATA coverage, are they going to find it? you know, on the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel? Um, what I think it's going to be, and this might change once we actually meet up and talk a little bit more about it, but so far it seems like it's going to basically be us getting to the show and then just kind of, you know, breaking apart and going off, seeing a bunch of booths, um, meeting a bunch of people, come back at the end of the day, rehash kind of what we learned, do some recording probably right there at the ATA show. I'm not sure how much video content there's going to be uh, posted yet at this point in terms of like coverage. I think a lot of the coverage aspects of it are going to be handled during the podcast that we actually record while we're down there. Okay. Yeah. I just didn't know if, if people could go to see, I don't know, a lot of people are always looking to see what they can find new from the ATA show and didn't know if you guys were going to be covering the video aspect of that, or it's going to be merely 
recorded audio from kind of your your day at the ATA show, day one, day two, and so on, and talk about the products you've seen and the people that you interacted with? Yeah, I, th- I think it'll definitely be audio format first and foremost, and then kind of video where it makes sense. Okay. So is there anything in particular going into the ATA show that you're excited about seeing if you know of a product or is there anything that you would like to see companies release or kind of a trend you would like to see the market go towards? Well, there's a couple of things that have been kind of stirring some, stirring the pot a little bit on Facebook and, and Instagram lately. Uh, one of the things I really want to check out is uh, Lone Wolf Custom Gear. So there's been a couple posts on social media just the last few days where it's pictures of Cody and Andre DeQuisto posing with pictures of deer and products. Looks like there might be a stand. Look like they might be bringing their Lobo riser back. Look like there's a trail camera. They might be doing some stuff. I don't know exactly if it's affiliated with Lone Wolf or not or, or if Andre still owns the rights to the name and you know what all is kind of going on there. But it seemed like they were going to be coming out with some products. I know that Andre has been filing some patents as of late. So it's going to be, I haven't seen, I seen a couple posts about it. I haven't looked into it a whole lot. I seen, um, a good tip. Like I get on the, the ATA's website and you can actually kind of look at the floor plan and a list of vendors. Mm -hmm. So every year, as soon as they release that, I scroll through there and find vendor names that I don't necessarily recognize and click on them. And then it may give a little description about their company and maybe even have a link to their particular product or their website. Um, and you can click on it and kind of get an idea of what what product they're going to be exhibiting, basically. Um, so I obviously seen the the Lone Wolf custom gear, clicked on it. It didn't go really go anywhere. Um, so I hadn't seen a whole lot about what they're working on doing with that. So that's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anything climbing related, I think, is going to be something that's always going to be an area of interest. You know, somebody comes out with a new style of climbing stick or something. I know there's a lot even the last couple of years that have popped out. But I mean, you remember when we were both talking about that Odin stick that initially came out at an ATA show and I don't think anything's really still come of it as of yet, but we both really liked the idea of that particular stick and the way that it folded. Yeah. And I think you think if you look at other um, companies like that, like you look at muddy um, or even um, man, I just spaced out, but like muddy muddy went into, I think at one time they made some trail cameras as well. Um, they kind of did some other things expanding beyond just the tree stand market. Um, so I think you're seeing a lot of companies trying to do that as well. Um, the same thing with kind of Hawk to a degree, Hawk kind of branched out a little more. So you're seeing a lot of these companies like, you know, whether it be Lone Wolf or XOP, however, they're going to branch that branching out into a few more markets accessory wise. Yeah. I don't know if there's going to be any saddle hunting companies there specifically. You, you saw the list, so I- Maybe you saw something that I didn't, but I mean, I know that like Ernie and Greg and a couple of their buddies are going to be down there. And apart from that, I don't think there's really going to be a booth presence for saddles in right. particular. Yeah. I didn't see anything saddle related, um, in the list. Um, I have talked to some guys lately. There's a lot of interest in the industry about saddles. Um, so that's going to be interesting to see kind of what comes from it. I know a lot of the the big name companies are kind of shying away from it because of the liability issue and not having a, a certification standard. Um, but I do know that there's a big drive in the industry because there's kind of two areas of the industry that really seem to be growing. And that is the uh, 
kind of box blind, private land, food plot side, and then the hardcore um, mobile hunting system side that's a pure public land because a lot of guys, you know, can't get access to private land anymore. So most people are hunting public. So I know those are two sides of the industry that are really growing and a relatively stale market for that much. So I know a lot of people, you know, you've seen the beast stick go up. A lot of the high end premium climbing sticks have all been sold out this year. So you're seeing a, a trend in that. So there's a quite a few people who are looking into that aspect because it is a growing side of the market. So do you think that kind of similar to how clothing went through a phase where it very quickly went from kind of more, uh, more consumer, or I should say lower end in terms of price to all of a sudden we got all these premium brands that are all jumping to the market. Do you think that you'll see a kind of a similar trend with hunting systems, be it tree stands or climbing sticks in terms of maybe the, the price of these things is going to go way up, but you start getting more options that are just made for one guy to buy one set to be able to use for the next 20 years and, and uh, lighter weight, better construction, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. You're seeing, you're seeing that all across the board. And like you've really mentioned with clothing, you know, you go back, I don't know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, uh, before, you know, Sitka was really big and before Kuyu started and first light, you know, $450 for a jacket was just outrageous. Nobody was going to pay that. Um, and now, you know, you're starting to see that where people are willing to spend that kind of money on really high end quality gear and I think we've got to the point where that's phasing into, you know, like you said, tree stands, um, climbing systems, saddles, just the smaller accessories in hunting are starting to see that just as much as, as the clothing line did 10 years ago. And I mean, it seems kind of like, at least in my opinion, social media is a big driver in terms of how quickly the market's kind of headed that direction, just because I think you know, prior to social media having such a big presence, guys really, they're just looking at a catalog or they're seeing advertisements online. Then they go look up a price and that's all you got. Maybe you got some reviews on, you know, cabelas.com or something, but it's not like the same kind of presence that you have with YouTube videos, the guys explaining stuff and Facebook posts where guys are arguing their points, pros and cons and stuff. I think that having more information available is making people more likely to see why they might want to spend more money than they would have originally thought that they wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. The, the digital marketing, the, um, you know, the aspect of it, you don't have to necessarily be a, a big company to be able to go viral for that sense. You know, a lot of what's pushed through the market can go viral, whether it be, uh, who you sponsor, what, you know, Insta famous person you're sponsoring or anything like that, it can really drive your, your market. Basically it's a lot of your advertising money there compared to previously, you know, you had to be on the outdoor channel. You had to be featured in bow hunter magazine, you know, to get in front of all these eyes. And now, you know, 30 minutes on YouTube and you could be down the YouTube rabbit hole, you know, looking at all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think it's played a big influence. And I think I want Good. So I was just going to make a kind of a, a tangent to go off on uh, trail cameras. I don't know why I was thinking of trail cameras, but I think that overall the industry is kind of headed towards the direction of more cell cams and less of the standard style cams. I mean, we're getting to the point now where the technology is no longer 
you know, kind of breaking news and it's been around long enough that companies of many different brands, many different sizes are, are starting to get their hands on it and it's starting to become more and more mainstream. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's more companies that are going to be, if not establishing a cell cam of their own, maybe they haven't built trail cameras in the past or, but maybe there's also going to be more companies that are taking more of their SKUs that they currently have and phasing them out for cell cams. Maybe a company had, you know, six or seven trail cameras that they sold and then they have maybe one or two cell cams. I think that that trend is going to make it more so that it's getting closer and closer to say like 50, 50. Um, and even like the, the additional systems like the Cuddyback link where you got maybe one main kind of hub at a lo- particular location where you can just pull a card at that one hub and it's collecting data from all those different cell cams. You only have to pay, I think it's like one uh, service fee. I think that that style of Intel gathering for trail cameras is, is the, the way of the future. And I don't think it's the very distant future. I think it's pretty much here. And I think over the next year, maybe two, there's going to be more and more options available. So it'd be interesting to see like, are, are more of these cell cameras going to come out that are 4g ready? Are there going to be some 5g ones coming out? I know the 5g is just about like ready to hit. There's rumors that a lot of the new smartphones that released this year might have 5g capabilities. Um, so, I mean, something like that can make a big difference in terms of what kind of picture quality you're able to get sent from the field. Um, I know like on some of my cameras, the image quality that you get on just that little snippet that comes in, it's like, you can hardly tell how many points are on the deer. You have to pull the card to actually really get a good look at what you're looking at. So I'm, I'm going to really have a, a keen eye for trail camera companies at the ATA and see if anybody has anything new or exciting on that route. I think it, it goes a little, to me, it goes a little beyond trail cameras. I think the trend in the industry is technology. Like last year, the big trend at the ATA show was like the Garmin um, range finding site yep. and the site, I think it was IQ range finding site. Those were the two big things. So I think, like you mentioned, you know, adding the technology to a, a product, whether it be a trail camera, a site, um, I know Nikon did the image stabilizing rangefinder. Um, you know, adding additional technology into products that are already existing to make them that more appealing to the industry is what I think you're going to see a lot of trend this year towards. Yeah, I think you're right. And there's always going to be a little bit of pushback from, I think, the industry as a whole where, you know, we have the ability to do so many different things with the technology. There's a lot of technology that's out there that we don't use right now because people might perceive it as being unethical. Um, but every year you see a little bit more and more toward that direction. I think as some of those things become more accepted, I think a lot of times people are just going to start to grow to accept certain things. Like for the most part, people have accepted trail cameras, right? Right. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, that probably wasn't the case. Well, I mean, just look at compound bows. Mm -hmm. I mean, when compound bows first came out, they were sorcery, black magic, you know, nobody liked them. And then here we are decades later and they're pretty much widely accepted. You know, people have been fighting the crossbow battle for the same amount of time. Basically you're going to have that. That's going to become accepted. You know, this whole thing about the, the Garmin range finding site, you know, in three years, it's basically going to be accepted practice to have. Um, so always the first year with some type of technology, it's a, 
an abrasion to the industry. They don't like it. We're going too far. But then a year or two later, it becomes an accepted. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the case. Although on that note, one interesting thing is that it seems like and just about all the places that I've looked at hunting, drones are one of those things that continues to be outlawed. I think a lot of people have kind of universally accepted that at least for the hunting portion of it, drones are kind of too much of an advantage. Yes, there's also some laws on the book about aerial hunting in most states, and they can classify those under the aerial hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what makes them illegal as well, is not just ethic reasons as well. Right. The same for you can't, like in parts of Alaska, you can't fly and hunt in the same day because of the same advantage as if you were to use a drone. Right. Well, and it makes total sense if you've ever used a drone. and You, be, you can see the views that you previously haven't been able to, to see it really. I mean, I love them for scouting because it, it just, you know, in the springtime or something, when you're really trying to get a picture of the land, you can look at all the aerials you want, but until you actually have eyes in the sky and, and really sort of take a look in, in 4K HD of that area and get a three-dimensional view of it, it really is an eye-opener. gives you a lot more of the big-picture look than just walking on the ground or looking at 2D aerial photos. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's the most up-to-date photo that can be done is, you know, when you have the drone. One of the big things that I've always thought about the coverage of the ATA show, and, and I understand the point of it, is... You know, it takes you, it takes the industry, the coverage, the media coverage there to the second or into the third day to get to some of what I would consider the more interesting products. It seems like when the ATA show starts, everybody, for obvious reasons, runs to Summit, Lone Wolf, all the big name companies to see what they have new. And I think it's a, it's a place where a lot of innovative products that might be new to the show or from a lesser known company uh, really get overlooked is because somebody finds a product from a, a big name company that's mediocre and it's not as good as a smaller company with a really good product because it's not until the third day that they make it to the, the innovative zone basically or some of these other smaller no name companies do they find the actual product. Right, right. And that makes sense. Just because it, the big-name companies drive the views for whether it's their podcast, their video, whatever. Everybody wants to see it. But by the end of the first day, you've seen new archery products, you know, two-hub blind 7,000 times. And it's like, okay, I've seen everything I can possibly see about a two-hub blind. Yeah. One interesting thing is I'm looking at the list of, of uh, exhibitors that are going to be there. There's seven different companies that have the word scent as the start of their name. So this is, it's a big thing is scent and feed or nutrition companies. Um, That is a really big, everybody and their brother can make feed or come up with some feed design basically. And then I noticed when I looked through the list, a lot of the scent companies were, scent warmers basically or scent dispersal devices that might heat the scent Mm -hmm. to help it disperse easier or use like a a spray system to disperse the scent 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I have one of those little systems sitting around here somewhere that I haven't really used much, like a Winsent unit. They might have a booth there too. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of that thing where they have a liquid scent and you're able to sort of heat it up and it vaporizes and, and distributes out into the air, which makes sense from, especially in a kind of a colder atmosphere to be able to get those molecules mobilized. Well, yeah, just the, the warmer scent will carry better, you know, pretty much any given time. But yeah, scents and feeds or mineral systems have always been a a big thing. You know, every year there's a new company and a company that was there last year is not there. It just seems like it's a it's a market that you can capitalize on really easily, um, or you know you're gonna fall into cracks with everything else. And I think with CWD and people not knowing, I think that's a risky side of the business to try to get into is is scents or gland-based lures or scents and minerals. I think that's a sketchy ground to be in right now. Yeah, I mean, you see more and more places where that that type of thing is being outlawed. Pretty much anything that's naturally based is oftentimes banned. Sometimes you still have the synthetics allowed, but then the whole aspect of creating a congregation point where disease could be spread is also an impact. Yeah, so it's uh, just a a difficult kind of niche of the market to get into. Yeah, I'd agree. Whole bunch of broadhead companies, whole bunch of aero companies. I mean, obviously the, the ones that I have the most interest in are, like you said, those companies that are more mobile based in terms of the hunting aspect. I mean, archery is obviously archery right? Archery can apply to everybody, but in terms of the outside of archery products, definitely the ones that are most appealing to me personally are the ones that I could see myself using mobile run and gun public land style of stuff. And it's a, I think that's a huge niche of the market that for some reason the market hasn't connected with yet. We have this, this growth of the market towards the, the public land run and gun style hunting, but we don't see any accessories kind of marketed towards that you know in a lot of states you can't screw anything into the tree you can't basically put anything through the cambium layer of the tree but yet when you look at most of your accessory hooks they're all some type of screw in bow hanger um, screw in hook we don't see somebody trying to develop a good you know strap on style system that is public land legal and i know a lot of people that hunt public land just don't abide by this they screw into a tree whatever um, but we just the market is really growing in that side and i just wonder you know the closest thing i've seen was i think it was the morph bow hanger system um, they came out with a, just a really interesting system uh man it was two years ago i guess i know they're going back to the ata show this year as well that uses a, a coupler system so that you can strap a bracket to the tree and coupler your bow hanger onto it with an accessory hook and some other things as well and I just wonder when we're going to see that kind of shift in the market towards really dedicated public land style accessories. Yeah. I mean, I think you see it somewhat, but it's, it's more like it's an afterthought or it's like a cottage industry type of thing where you got a small company who's making something that fills a niche, but then, you know, like a bigger company like HME might have some kind of strap on system with molded hooks that you can use. Um, but it's not something that kind of everybody's, digging in the market and trying to get one of their own in yeah the the bigger companies to me just seem like it's a 
like you said, it's a much afterthought. Yeah, let's throw a a strap-on version in there as well, whereas your smaller companies are dedicating a lot more time, effort, and resources into building these better systems for, you know, the smaller companies. And that's what you see a lot of is you see smaller companies taking bigger risks than the large companies, obviously mostly for the liability reasons compared to, you know, a big company putting out something like a saddle where they could have a huge liability risk. Yeah. Well, you know what I think part of it is too, is that, I mean, a lot of the industry is based on magazines and TV, right? And it's just kind of the last few years that the, the YouTube and the Facebook and kind of more of these live, like Amazon prime type shows have started to grow. And so obviously if you're trying to film something that has X number of episodes per year, or you're trying to get something that looks really appealing in a magazine, the easiest way to do it is to go kind of the, the anti-public land route and be able to get right. Your, your highest quality with your kind of lower pressure and, and all that stuff, which makes sense from the, the standpoint of trying to either get big deer on film, uh, which of course, then you get all the blinds, you get the, the food products and all that kind of stuff. Whereas if you, you get groups like the hunting public that are kind of making their own way and it's like the number of products they use is like, it's not all that extensive, right? They're, they're just kind of doing it with what everybody else already probably has. Um, so it's not from a big company standpoint, it's not like a huge money grabber type of thing to be able to create a bunch of different products to, to fill that niche. But I think as the the years go on, I think you're going to start to see more and more of the everyman type show coming up. I think that's definitely a growing thing. And you might, I don't know if you're going to see less of the traditional kind of food plot, low pressure hunting on TV or magazines, but I think it's kind of trending in in that way. There'll always be the guys that are the private land, hunt over the food plot, box blind. They're always going to be there, but I think the younger people getting into hunting, it's just difficult for them to lease the property or, you know, get permission to hunt those types of properties. So you see more people going towards the trend of the hunting public where public land grinded out, hunt hard. And with that, you also see, you know, kind of the, the slow decline of outdoor television, um, the outdoor channel things like that you're going to see that and you're seeing you know podcasts take up that that market basically you're seeing uh, youtube um, instagram places like that are going to fill that market because that's what caters to that younger generation of hunters that come in yeah i mean i don't even have cable and i'm not super young (laughs) but uh i have it but i don't have any of the outdoor channels and i don't even watch them if i had them Right, right. I got Amazon Prime, so I got actually, there's actually a few, a a number of hunting shows on Amazon Prime compared to other places like Netflix or Hulu, I don't think has anything. Netflix at least has Meat Eater, but Amazon Prime, they've got, um, Randy Newberg's got a show on there, Uh, Honey Public is on there, there's a few other ones that I'm spacing out, Solo Hunter's on there, I'm pretty sure. So there's definitely more and more options that are popping up for people, you know, kind of like a anti-cable type of of thing well the the cut the cord mentality yeah you know we're going to cut the cord and go to digital streaming so you're you're seeing a lot of that and that's what's influencing what we're going to see at the ata show in 
three days basically, probably before this is released. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to it for sure. But is there any one particular product that maybe you've had your in your mind of somebody making, somebody creating, uh, or you know, a product that you've seen previously that you think, well, if they tweaked it a little bit like this, it would be a really a really great product. Um, is there anything like that that you're expecting to see come out of it? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be something that catches me off guard as like a really innovative product, probably a technology-based one that I'm not sort of anticipating. But in terms of things that I can already like kind of think about or know about now, I mean, there's not really a whole lot. Um, for the most part, I think a lot of the stuff that I already have is already very close to things that I think are optimized for my way of hunting. And so it's like, yeah, it'd be nice to see more climbing sticks that are robust and lightweight and, and this and that, but nothing that's like groundbreaking. To me, I would like, like based off the, the Nikon, I think it was Nikon. Nikon did the rangefinder with the image stabilization. It'd be interesting to see if they brought that to a binocular. So you have an image stabilized oh. binocular. Yeah, that, um, that'd be I huge, especially if you had like a 10X or a 12X or something. That's the biggest complaint with a high power magnification you, binoculars. You can't hold stuff. Yeah, if you're even if you're running like 15s, you can't bear you can't freehand 15s without being all over the place. Whereas if they could get something like that image stabilization technology into a binocular, Obviously, it's probably going to make the binocular a little bit heavy, but it's going to make that binocular more versatile because you can freehand 12s or you could put those 12s on a tripod at that point. So it's going to make them be that much more versatile, especially for the Western guys. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. So, that's, that's a decent that's a decent idea. So that's one that, that I've kind of waited to see since I, you know the release of that rangefinder. And then the other one is... Um, the Primo's ground blind that was last year that had these kind of see-through technology, how you could see out, but the animals couldn't see in. Yep. But in the NAP two or three hub blind configuration. Um, so a smaller, lighter ground blind, but with the ability to see, you know, 170 or 270 degrees basically out of that instead of have the full fabric. So I think if they took the Primo's ground blind and that NAP, I don't even remember the name of it now, um, that ground blind and kind of put those two together, I think that would be a really interesting concept because you're going to get a small, light, two-hub ground blind, has a, pretty much the same square footage as a five-hub, but gives you the versatility to be able to see from the fabric of the, the Primo's. Yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. I was just thinking about that binocular setup a, a little bit more, and I think one of the main reasons, too, probably why you don't see it is that the uh, binoculars are typically something that don't have an electrical component to them. And I would imagine, I, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I would imagine that the stabilized rangefinder is probably using electronic image stabilization. Rangefinders obviously run on a battery. They have a LCD display that's that's displaying data, so it's already got electronics built into it. I think with the binoculars, as long as you had some kind of system where now all of a sudden you got to run a battery inside, 
um, then that would probably allow you to have a system that would be able to do like electronic image stabilization. But you see range finding binoculars, you know, are becoming bigger and bigger now as well. So I think you have that platform to put it in as well. Yeah, I think somebody could make it if they wanted to. The technology right. is I, there. I don't. I, that's above my pay grade. I don't know what that <laughs> would, what that would take. Uh, I'll leave that to the the engineers of Nikon, I guess. Oh, there's a new camera. I, I think I told you about this one already. The Psionics. I, I looked for their name. They weren't going to have a booth at ATA, but they have a little. They kind of branded as like a. It's like a cross between like a night vision device and an action camera for low light specialty. But basically, it's like a, I don't even know what you would compare it to size-wise. It's kind of like a, a little bit. It's bigger than a GoPro. It's maybe like, I don't know, four or five inches long. But this device is something that has an eye cup in the back, so you can look through it as if it were sort of like a, a night vision monocular. But it's all digital. It's not like your typical night vision, which is using analog signal and just kind of you know boosting whatever ambient light is there. It works right. just like a camcorder would in that it captures the available light through an iris. It turns that signal into a digital or that, that image into a digital signal. And then it just kind of uses large sensor, large pixels, and then boosts that up uh, a lot internally to be able to give you an image that all of a sudden is much, much brighter than you would expect to see from other cameras. So if you compare like the low light capabilities camera wise versus any of the things that I own, it blows it out of the water. And then also it has like a night vision mode where you can take off the IR filter or the infrared filter. And, uh, it lets in the infrared light as in addition to the visible light. So then all of a sudden you're getting even more light. And even though the colors look a little bit funky, you can still get like full color night vision. And so the monochrome what is, is it better. about this? But what is it about this camera or in this camera that makes it that much more versatile compared to other cameras? Like I'm not a... Well, I think... So camera-wise, the only the only draw to it is that it's a super low-light capable camera, right? I mean, if you look at the resolution, it films in 720, which is technically HD, but I mean, now we got 4K is kind of the norm, right? So right. resolution-wise, it's nothing too special. Uh, it doesn't have a zoom. It's just a fixed aperture. It's kind of similar to what you'd see on like a Tacticam zoom. Um, it's okay. kind of a narrower field of view. It's not like a GoPro wide angle. Um, but yeah, the main thing is there's just low light. When you could have a black screen on a GoPro, it would still look like it's almost broad daylight with that other camera. So what is it What is it in that camera that gives it the advantage over like the Tacticam? Is it, uh, is it just so uh, the ability... Yeah, one one thing is that the the sensor is a big part of it. Uh, so the okay. sensor is much larger. It's a one inch sensor as opposed to like a one over two point three, which is more common in like a GoPro style camera. So the sensor's area wise much larger. In addition to that, the pixels, the individual pixels that make up the sensor, are much much larger. So even th think about this: even though the sensor is much larger, there's less pixels. You're filming in 720 versus a GoPro with a much smaller sensor can film in 4K. Okay. So each one of those pixels on that big sensor are enormous, relatively speaking. And the bigger pixels typically in, in uh, digital video mean they can gather more light. Right. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it too is that the iris can be opened up a lot more. So 
typical like a GoPro. I don't know what Tacticam is, but it's pretty standard for action cameras to have an iris of like f2.8 or f2.5 or somewhere around that range. Whereas this camera, you can switch it to like a daytime mode where it's like f5.6. And then you can switch it down to twilight f2.0. So you're already letting in more light there iris wise compared to most action cameras. And then you, the night mode, in addition to removing the IR filter, also opens up that iris to f1.4, which is letting in quite a bit of light. And then I believe the, um, the software within the camera is capable of boosting the gain on the image much, much more. So I think it said that it was like a equivalent ISO of like 800,000, which doesn't really mean much if you're not super familiar with video and photo terms. But I mean, like to give you a comparison, my camcorders typically will film up to like ISO 6,400. And they're saying this thing can go up to like roughly the equivalent of like 800,000. The Sony A7S, which is, or the A7S II, A7 III, which are like the low light beasts of full frame mirrorless cameras right now, they can go up to like ISO 200,000. And now the image itself, I've looked at some of the stuff, it doesn't look all that great when you're really boosting the gain. Obviously it's like a lot, it's very grainy, but I mean, right. at the point where it gets to that, you're like full blown night, like moonlight. Well beyond shooting light, basically. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, this thing so will this see, is, it sees better in the dark than you do. So, I mean, that's the thing too, is like guys are strapping it to their, their helmets or whatever, and and you can, you know, kind of mount it on and use it in kind of a night vision type function. So it's kind of, it's extending the ability to those late twilight shots all the way up to shooting light where you've seen people that have tried to use their camera and raise the gain, and it gets really grainy in the video because they're trying to get as much light as possible into that camera. Mm -hmm. This, because of the, the larger sensor, fewer pixels, is allowing you to extend that visibility or that light capturing ability farther into that later shooting hour period, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, end of shooting light in a dark tree canopy cover, you're still going to be able to see and get good quality, well, reasonable quality footage, but... In terms of the light gathering, very acceptable. It's almost going to look like you're still, you know, 20 minutes out from shooting light. Whereas so, a lot of times like a GoPro or a Tacticam or something, that same kind of scenario is going to be, you know, almost black. So I'm guessing with no zoom, you're specifically looking at a kind of like what you do, the point of view camera that's mounted next to your head or a camera that might be even facing you in the tree or... 20 yards and in would be my guess. Um, for... No, I'd say it's, so it's, it's going to be similar to, you know, how like the Tacticams have like the five X and eight X modes where they're always kind of advertising that you're going to have a lot better looking footage than a wide angle camera, like a GoPro. Right. So it's kind of the same type of deal. I think the field of view is like 47 degrees or something like that, which is very close to like what the Tacticam is on zoom. So it's like one of those things where you either stick it on your head and, and use the app to make sure you're aiming it right or stick it on the front of your bow and the animals are going to look like they're a fair bit closer than an action camera. Okay, okay so more of a, a point of view camera compared to a kind of on you, right? like you said, action camera. It doesn't have that wide fisheye field of view to be able to cover a lot of you. It's a narrow, I think you said 47 degrees field of view. Yeah. So relatively tight, so kind of a, like you said, a directional 
you know, point of point of view or um, a general area compared to a wide angle. Okay. Yeah, but that's I'm, interesting. I'm getting one, so I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely test it out and put it through the ringer and see if I'm hoping it's gonna be something I can add to my self filming arsenal for those real low light. Because I mean, even my camcorder it struggles when it gets yeah, down even, to the last light. Yeah, and I think. Yeah, your head cam as well, like point of view. That's one thing that, you know, thinking about it now, you said it's only 720, yeah. which is technically HD, where you're, the one you're using now is 4K, correct? Yeah. So you're able to crop in a little bit, whereas this one you may not be able to crop in as much, but it's also got a little narrower field of view, so you may not need to. Right, you wouldn't need to crop. Okay. That's what I was wondering. Because when you said 720, it seemed really low, but I guess that makes sense for the capability of its low light. If it was 4K, probably couldn't do that. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, if they would have made a camera with that type of sensor and pixel size in 4K, it would be enormous, relatively, <laughs> and a lot more expensive. I mean, it's like 800 bucks as is, so it's you know double the price of a GoPro, roughly speaking. Right. But can do things that that uh, other action cameras cannot. And I don't even know if you'd necessarily frame it in the same light as an action camera. I think it's different enough that it's sort of its own category. Right, because you said the field of view is a lot narrower, so it's not necessarily that action cam as much as it is a a really good low-light camera for field of view or, like you said, mounted on your bow, pointed where you're shooting, basically. Yep. Hmm. That's interesting. That'll be It'll be interesting to see your thoughts on it once you get it um, and run it through some paces to see, see what kind of low-light because that's always a big thing with filming hunts, which is another part of the industry that's really getting big, is self-filming. So I think you're going to see more products catered to that, um, like tree arms, um, things of that nature, because everybody out there is, is starting to self-film or film hunts. So a camera like this has a really good place in an arsenal like yours um, for that content. Yeah. Yeah, it was a nice little tangent there. I'm not even going to be at the ATA show. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a new product that you're interested in, and sometimes yep. not all the really cool new products can make it to the ATA show because they're still too small, registered too late. There's a lot of things that factor into that. Yeah. I bet they'd be a shot show. That seemed like it'd be a good fit for that camera. Yeah, I could see that. I couldn't imagine shot show. I've heard it's chaotic. All right, so let's let's uh, switch over to the broadhead arrow recap. So, what arrow weight were you, did you shoot the same arrow weight the entire season this year? I did. I shot the same arrows that I've shot previously. I'm still working on getting finding my arrow setup that I want to go with. I know we talked a lot about front of center, uh, better arrow delivery system. So, insert, outsert. Um, the first three inches of the arrow, you know, I'm still, my plan is still going to be try to find a light arrow grains per inch and then try to get as much as that weight up front as I can um, and get that same weight arrow that I'm looking for. So I recently picked up some of the day six, uh, I believe that's their outsert center pin technology or something like that is what they're calling it it's basically um think of it as like a nail that has been cut off that slides in the arrow 
So basically it's a plug for the first inch and a half of the arrow. And then it has an outsert that goes halfway over that. So the outsert covers the first three quarters of the arrow. And then this pin goes inside of the arrow and goes back probably an inch and a half, an inch and a quarter. So kind of the premise behind that is you get the the rigidity kind of of the center pin, whether it's the Valkyrie or this system of not breaking the arrow right behind the outsert, which is always a, a huge issue with outserts is you seem to break arrows directly behind the outserts. Um, so it kind of stabilizes that front two inches of the arrow, inch and a half of the arrow more than a traditional insert or outsert would. So I've got some of them in, I've got them glued up on a couple different shafts. Um, and I'm going to be testing those out to see if that insert system is as durable as they say it is and if it holds up as well. If it is, then I'll look to putting them on lighter weight arrows. I know they're the day six arrows are all carbon, but they're extremely heavy grains per inch. I think they're in the 11 to 12 grain per inch range, if I remember correctly. So they're a relatively heavy arrow overall, which is not necessarily what I'm looking for. Gotcha. Do you think you can also just take a piece of threaded rod six inches long or something and epoxy it into the front end of any standard carbon arrow that uses an outsert to get a similar effect? Yeah, I think you could. I know we also talked about this as well is basically reducing the amount of flex that's in the front part of that arrow by using a threaded rod or another carbon insert basically to reduce the flexing section of the arrow from, say, you know, if the arrow's 28 inches, you know, you put 8 inches in the front of that, and then your arrow is only flexing over 20 inches. Um, so theoretically, you can get away with a weaker spine arrow uh, because it's flexing over a shorter distance. Um, I've kind of tried to shy away from that so far because of, I think it's going to be kind of difficult to grasp is, okay, now I have a, a rigid 8-inch section of the arrow. Am I going to need to be in a 500 a 400 or even a 600 spine arrow, but I'm pushing 200 grains up front. So I think that's kind of a wormhole I'm trying to avoid at this point. Yeah. It's kind of all trial and error at that point. Right. Especially when you know that most standard systems are going to do the job. It's like how far down the, how far into the weeds do you want to go to optimize? Yeah. I know coming from the traditional side you know, when I shot self bows a lot, that was always the biggest issue with, with glue on points was every arrow you would break would be right behind the glue on point. Um, so to me, that's what I'm trying to prevent or fix in my carbon arrows is I don't want to have that weak link of the arrow. Is it really that big of a weak link? No, probably not. Um, You know, I can't say that I've really had a whole lot. I've had one arrow in like the past four years that I can think of that has broke right behind the outsert or the insert. I think it was an insert that I was using on that arrow. So it's not that big of a deal. But to me, that that front four inches of an arrow, including the broadhead, is probably just as important as spine of the arrow or fletchings that's on the back of that arrow. Mm-hmm. So what about, have you changed your setup? Um, cause I know at one point you were shooting, I think they were gold tip 
Platinum Pierce. And then yeah. I know you've kind of explored some other options. So where have you where have you ended up? I mean, the biggest thing for me was this year I wanted to try the high mass, high FOC thing, right? So in the past I used arrows that were often in the mid 400 grain range, either with expandables or with small fixed blades like Slick Tricks or Magnus Snuffers or you know the the small little three blade or even two blade broadheads. I tried some um, Steel Force I think a while back and. Really, this year, I went with not necessarily intentionally heavy grain per inch, but heavy overall mass. So I, I, my arrows that I shot for whitetails this year were 658 grains, which is quite a bit heavier. And then I had big broadheads in the front, too. Uh, so the, the thing I wanted to figure out was if I went with a heavy setup like that, and if I could get big broadheads to fly well, big non-vented, either three or two blades... Would that give me the confidence to be able to take a shot that I know is going to go through like the shoulder, for instance, and still kill the deer and still, you know, potentially even get a pass through. Um, and I think I could say that based on the, not only the testing I did, but also kind of the, the shot experiences that I've had. And then also just kind of watching, you know, like, uh, like Aaron shot two deer, I think quarter and two this year with his setup, he's also shooting good fixed blade broadhead, heavy arrow, very high poundage. I think that I've kind of solidified for myself that, yeah, if you're shooting a high poundage bow, you got a heavy arrow, good front of center, good cut on contact, solid broadhead, that shoulder should never really be an issue. So now the question is, okay, now that I, I know I've kind of proved to myself that that is the case, is there any kind of optimization range for something that's the size of a whitetail? Right, because that same setup that I, I shot my whitetails with this year, I could have taken anything with that setup probably anywhere in the world and hunted everything up to, you know, maybe like African, you know, what do they call it, the big five or something. Maybe I'd want to go a little bit heavier for something like that. But anything else, right. no issues with that type of setup. 75 pounds, 29 and a half inch draw, 660 grain arrow. Um, so it's like, okay, with whitetails, the one downside that I, I saw with at least the broadhead size was that small broadheads, either one and one eighth or like one inch or one and a sixteenth, whatever, anything in that kind of size range, regardless if it's two blade or three blade, it always seems like the blood trails are never great, which doesn't usually matter that much because the deer go down relatively quickly anyway. Uh, but it, it is nice to have more blood on the ground just from the standpoint of what if you're in cattails and the thing just bolts off, you don't remember exactly where I went through and now you're bushwhacking through cattails trying to find the first spot of blood. I mean, I'm sure you've had the instances where you hit a deer and it takes off running and you might not find first blood for the first 20, 30 yards. Right. So it's like how much bigger, if I wanted to stay, say with a heavy arrow, good front of center, good insert system. And I wanted to go with a bigger cut. It's like, how big could I get? without losing that confidence of the ability to also be able to take non-customary shot angles, say quartering to say driving it right through the shoulder blade and putting it in the vitals. So that might be something that I, I do more testing on in the off season next year. I think with, when you get into those bigger cuts, I, I mean, it's just natural to think it's obviously going to reduce your penetration because you're trying to shove that much more of a broadhead mm -hmm. through that compared to your inch and an eighth, your, your smaller, even one inch heads, 
you know, would go through a lot easier than say a two and a 16th fixed blade or a two inch fixed blade. You know, obviously that's half or twice as much surface area, hundred percent increase basically. So, you know, I think some of those shots, even though you do have a, a heavier, a heavy arrow, you're more apt to hit more dense parts of the bone, say where the ridge and the scapula is, um, you know, because of the bigger cut, you're more likely to hit that, whether it causes a deflection. Uh, for the most part, the shoulder is relatively, relatively brittle, except for that ridge that runs through the scapula, basically, which is a extremely dense part of the bone and, and relatively difficult to break through. So, you start throwing a, a larger broadhead in those areas, you're more likely to hit that, cause a deflection, you know, t- on that ridge so that your arrow doesn't go exactly where you were aiming or, you know, not get penetration at all. Yeah, it's the big trade-off, right? I mean, I, I know for sure that if I ever, for situations that call for a lighter arrow, I'm sticking with probably the smaller broadheads. Um, right. Like if I, like when I go out west next year, I'll probably use somewhat, I won't use 660 grains. I'm pretty sure of that. I might use somewhere between 500 and 560 or something like that. That's kind of what I'm thinking, but I'll probably use a one and one eighth, either the three blade or, or two blade head. But then it's like for close quarters, whitetail, it's like, I'm probably going to use the, the heavy arrow again. Why not? It's like, yeah. I don't have, I don't have an issue with the trajectory of that heavy of an arrow at those type of shot distances. So it's like, okay, if I'm already committing to shooting a heavier arrow, that's going to give me the best possible outcome momentum wise. It's like, maybe I could get away with something bigger and still have plenty of penetration, still be able to do the things that I want my setup to do, but then have the added benefit of just a little bit more blood on the ground, which 90% of the time won't make a difference, but the extra 10% of the time could make a difference. And I think the only way to figure it out for me is just, to test. I mean, I got a bunch, I kept all the shoulder blades from my deer this year. I had a guy send me some elk shoulder blades. So I'll be able to do some testing. I think if there's something that it's like, if there's a a point where I shoot a setup and it's like, "Mm, I don't know, that might not be able to, to easily punch through a shoulder. I don't know. It's not worth it for me. Right. That confidence is, I like it too much. So it's like, whatever I would, if I did make a change, it's like, it would have to be somewhere shy of that point. If I buy a Simmons tree shark or something like a two in whatever inch cut, and it's driving through an elk shoulder blade with my setup, it's like, Hey, why not? You know, if I can get it to fly well up to, you know, 40, 50 yards, that's plenty for whitetail. I have a massive cut that you can put your hand in, in the hole. Um, but it's like, yeah, if I find that all of a sudden that doesn't, or if I try shooting like an afflictor or something where, I'm pretty confident that tip's not going to curl, but maybe the blades jam up inside the shoulder. And it's like, eh, probably not. Um, but then again, I might surprise myself. I might be able to shoot something like that. And it, it performs very well. So it's, it's something where that's going to be kind of the next phase for me. I think I've kind of, I've done the thing where it's like best possible penetration outcome. And I like the confidence that it gave me. So now it's like, is there some kind of wiggle room with a whitetail size game that I can still play around with? Especially with your setup. I mean, you're like a 20, 29 inch draw, 29 and a half, 29 and a half inch draw, 70 plus pounds. You know, that gives you an added benefit over somebody like me. You know, I'm 27 and a half, typically shoot less than 60, maybe 63. 
Um, so that's a there's a big difference in there that gives you that ability to to kind of play with that larger cutting diameter broadhead in that situation. And especially with whitetails, you're looking sub 40 yards for 98% of your shots probably. You know, realistically, sub 25 for 80% of those. And so you're able to retain that energy at those close distances, long draw, heavy weight, a lot better than if you're shooting a, f- a further distance or at a bigger animal, basically. Right. Yeah, the more momentum you're putting behind whatever you're throwing out there, it's like the, definitely the more the more flexible your options become. Obviously, I wouldn't do anything, you know, with like a trad bow. It's like I'm using still the small broadheads. Two blade, I think I'm going to stick with, even though I have three blade broadheads that people do have plenty of success with. I think I'm sticking with the two blade smaller broadheads for the trad bow and, and just, you know, moderately heavy to heavy arrows. It's not like I'm going to try and shoot a massive head out of a, a trad bow because I, I want as much penetration as I can get because in all likelihood, if I ever were to nick the shoulder or something, it's not like I'm intentionally going to take a shot through a shoulder with that much less energy, that much less momentum. That's like if something, if I'm off by a little bit, it's like I want the best possible outcome I have. And if I have to get down on my hands and knees to track, then so be it. And for me, the blood trail is a big one. You know, obviously I have a very difficult time seeing blood or finding blood. So, you know, most of the time when I shoot a deer, my I watch that deer run till I can't see it anymore. If it makes it out of sight, the next thing I do is I stick another arrow in the ground as close to where I shot that deer as I can so that when I get down, it gives me a reference point to be able to start looking for because if I can't find blood, you know, 20 yards, 10 yards, anywhere right in there, I start to struggle right away. You know, obviously that's why I got the dog, but even in those situations, I'm just looking for white belly at that point. I mean, I'll walk towards where the last place I saw that deer and I'm looking for white belly at that point because I can't see blood on the ground whatsoever. And that's what makes it difficult for me. So that's why, you know, the bigger cutting broadheads, you know, I started out shooting, um, sonic broadheads i think they were called um they were like a seven eighths of an inch cut three blade i killed deer with them but if those deer didn't die in sight there i there was no blood i mean i just couldn't find it and so that's why i've moved towards bigger cut to try to get as much blood on the ground as quickly as possible you shot the afflictors all year this year right yep the one and a half version or the one and three quarter uh, it's their swine version. I think it's the one and three, no, one and a half, I believe. Yeah, one and a half. Stain, all stainless steel, 150 grain? 150 grain, yep. Yeah. That's the same one I shot my mule deer, well, similar one I shot my mule deer with. Right. I think the only difference between the ones you had and the ones I had was just the shape of the tip. Yeah, they've redesigned the tip and the way that the blades are held in the tip, and honestly, I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I did not know this until I killed the deer in Missouri. Um, shot that doe. You know, I, that broadhead should have been able to be reused, um, but they use a very tiny machined pin in the head um, mm-hmm. that sheared off, whereas previously there was a screw that was what held the blades in place, and now it's a machined pin. And that pin sheared off, so the very tip of that afflictor 
basically was ruined. I couldn't use that broadhead again, even though the ferrule was in good shape, the tip was in good shape, the blades were in good shape. The interior part of the tip, it sheared that pin off, rendering that broadhead useless, basically. Huh. I, I feel like I remember John Lusk doing a review on him recently where he's talking about shear design versus non-shear design and their pins, and they had... I thought he said that the newer ones had a non-shearing design, the ones that they are some new purple one that they were coming out with. Yeah, I think that's the, um, oh, what do they call that? I just spaced out. The violet maybe or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it could be, you know, the swine ones that I used had that. Um, the ones previous to that, the EX hybrid uh, or the XT hybrids, um, they weren't like that. So I don't know why they went to that particular design. Um, honestly, wasn't a big fan of it. Uh, I like the heavier design head. I wish... You know, back to the ATA, somebody come out with a 200-grain mechanical broadhead, and I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most people seem to stop at 150, uh, which is okay. You can put 50-grain inserts in and get you there. But, you know, I just like to see more weight up front. So if I can get a 200-grain a broadhead with 150-grain or 150-grain insert to get me up 250 in the front, you know, that's ultimately what I'm looking for is all that weight up front. Yeah. And I mean, it's like you can, like you said, you can add insert weights and whatnot, but it's, it's nice sometimes to just be able to screw on a head set up for a heavier, when your arrow set up for it. Absolutely. I, you know, putting some of these 150 grain, hundred grain inserts in there, you know, you're, at, you're moving that weight back in the actual arrow shaft, which is reducing your front of center. If you could keep that all in front of the arrow shaft, basically. And that's where supporting that first two and a half to three inches of the arrow to make that part stiffer because you have so much of that weight out front, you know, it's going to benefit that arrow entirely by doing that. Mm -hmm. The connection point between the mass of the arrow or the mass of the broadhead and the entire rest of the arrow. On those, uh, I have a, some of those Bishop arrows, the mammoth ones. Um, the FOC Kings. And then I have a couple of the fat eliminator ones too, to play around with. But on the, at least the FOC King ones, they have kind of like a system you were describing earlier where the grains per inch is super light. It's like six point something grains per inch and a three thirty spine. But then the inserts made out of like an alloy steel, um, standard sized head. So you, you don't have to worry about like half in half out or anything like that. Right. Uh, so that part of it's solid. And then they have the, the rods that screw in for the back. So it's like adding a broadhead weight or an insert weight, but instead of an insert weight, it's like another piece of carbon arrow. So you're, but they're longer than like the ones that come with the fire knock system. So it's like, you could have that 330 spine, six grain per inch arrow. And then inside of that shaft, you have like 16 inches of, of rod of, of additional, basically like another carp. It's like, if you stuck a micro diameter arrow shaft, inside of a standard diameter arrow shaft, then you'd have a stiffer dynamic spine. So you're able to throw a little bit heavier weight out front. Right. And the fact that it's stiffer, you, the fact that you have most of that support in the front also makes it more front heavy. So you, you end up getting something that can throw a heavier arrow or a heavier broadhead, um, and be able to get a really high front of center. So that's kind of an interesting concept. I think it's a little bit pricier than most people are, are willing to afford, but interesting i would be i know they i know 
he really pushes that as being one of like the one of the most durable arrows there is because of that whole design. I think it would be interesting to go to like the total archery challenge out here in Utah where you have the high potential of missing targets and uh-huh. skipping arrows around and taking that arrow and saying, Okay, I'm gonna run one arrow for as long as I can. How many targets can I get through? You know, whether I hit, miss, because there's some pretty rocky terrain that you're going to put an arrow through. Obviously, you could scrape carbon off of it, but most of the time, it, that's not the cause of the broken arrow. You see arrows broken in half, you know, broken behind the inserts. There's just a pile of arrows next to the target where people have missed. So it'd be interesting to see just how durable that arrow would stand up compared to a, you know, a standard arrow for that matter, a full metal jacket or something like that. Yeah, it would be. Because, I mean, usually in my mind, I'm always thinking, like, durability from a wood standpoint, like a hunting standpoint. Like, oh, what happens if if I don't get a pass through and the thing runs off through the woods with half an arrow taken out? Or what happens if I spine it and it falls on top of the arrow? Really, the main thing is, like, if I hit some kind of bone, is it going to not break? Which usually doesn't seem like it happens too much, but it could happen, like, right behind the insert, like you said. Like, as long as that part's supported, I think the... The rear portion is generally less likely to catastrophically snap. You might get like a split toward their back end, but that's not really going to affect penetration a whole lot. Yeah, think about a lot of these guys you see on YouTube, wherever, that you know may recover part of their arrow, and they hold it up to the, an arrow in their quiver, and it's the first you know two inches is where the arrow broke off. It may have got eight inches of penetration, but the arrow broke within that first two inches behind the insert or including the insert. You know, so to me, that's the big weak point of the arrow, and that's kind of what I'm trying to avoid. Same thing mm-hmm. with what their bishop's doing with that arrow is you're supporting that first half of the arrow. In this case, it sounds like, you know, it's a a pretty long carbon insert inside of the arrow that you're really using to stiffen the arrow entirely as well as the front half of the shaft. Yeah, before I got those arrows, there was one that I tested. I think I took a... Was it a VAP 500 maybe? I'm trying to remember. I took some kind of VAP arrow and I stuck it inside of a standard diameter and glued it in place just for fun. (laughs) But I can't remember what size it was. I think it was a... Wasn't it a VAP, uh, like a rip? Which is like their 166 diameter? No, the rips are 204 ID. What's their 166... Uh, maybe it's just their VAP. Whoop! I'm making all kinds of mess. I've got one. This is one of their VAP 166. This is a sport. Um, so it'd have to be one of their smaller diameters to put it inside of a. Or it's either the rip or the VAP. One of the two. Maybe it's a 3D HV. No, 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 it wasn't that. I don't know. I I could probably, I'll probably think of it. it yeah. I could just walk into my garage and go look at what it was, <laughs> but. But no, it's, it's the same kind of concept. Like you're sticking in a small carbon diameter. Just, oh, the the 1200 VAP target is very close to being able to fit inside of a um, a 204 series. They're 206. Yeah, and so that's it's real close. Yeah, so that you're probably not quite there. But a standard diameter arrow. What's the standard diameter ID? 246, roughly. Yep. Uh, so. Yeah, probably. I th- I think like a like a 3D HV or a, a rip might be able to fit inside of that standard diameter. 
And then it's just a matter of working all the other components that you can still make it removable unless you just want to permanently epoxy in, inside. Right, which is where you get into the difficulty of spine because now you've stiffened the front 10 inches of that arrow that's going to change the flexing part of the arrow, which is going to theoretically make the arrow stiffer. So you could shoot a, a 500 spine when you might need a 340 because you've stiffened the arrow that much. Yeah, 500 spine... 3DHV or RIP is 242 OD. So that gives you a couple thousandths on either side for a standard right. diameter shaft. But yeah, then it's it's all throw out the software, just glue it up and test. That's about all you can do. Yeah, that's... And it's expensive no matter how you, you look at it. That's kind of like why one of the reasons I'm almost thinking about like for Colorado next year, just sticking with a standard diameter arrow, a normal brass insert, and just gluing the, or screwing the broadhead in and, and going hunting. Cause it's just, like, just to keep it simple, keep it simple. And if you lose the arrow, it's not like, it's not like you're going to about to cry because you just broke or shot and cannot recover a $80 system that you put together, you know? Right. I mean, the mule deer I missed this year. I mean, I had a, that one I shot at with one of the uh, scientific method Bishop two blade, 145 or 150 grain broadheads on it. I looked for that arrow for 25 minutes. Cause I mean, that broadhead's not cheap on the front end of it. Obviously a white arrow in snow, I was probably never going to find that. But to your point, you know, you don't want to lose that much money in a deer, at a deer, past a deer, you know, so like I said, keep it simple. You don't have to worry about it as much. Yeah, I mean the the broadhead's one thing because it's like if you really if you care about the broadhead enough, you can go up out there with one of those little handheld metal detectors. You might be able to find it if you spend it if you right. But if you, the arrow shaft breaks, it's like you might still recover all your components, but your shaft that you still you know either painstakingly put together and and tuned or paid a lot of money for is just going in the garbage. And I guess kind of what drives me is in all my years hunting, I've never really been satisfied with any sero any arrow setup that I've ever used. You know, I used full metal jackets for the longest time just because they were heavy. Then, you know, I got more into the, well, you can do front of center so you can get that weight, you know, keep the same arrow weight as the full metal jacket, but move that all towards the front. And so that's kind of what's drove me down this path is I've just never been satisfied with any arrow I've ever shot. So why not try to find something, whether I have to make it, with a footer, um, with an insert-outsert system, whatever that is, but obviously get something that I like that builds confidence in my arrow setup. And I just I don't think I've found that yet. Yeah. It's tough. Well, I mean, it's not it's not tough. I mean, you can go out to the store, buy a six-pack of cheap arrows, and it's like you can kill a deer with it, no problem. But it's like yeah, to really optimize it, it's like there's no right answer. It's a it's a long rabbit tunnel that you can go in for days and days and <laughs> are you any like you said, are you you know, if I spend three hundred dollars in arrows components to build a, a good arrow, am I any further along than somebody who goes and buys a six dollar arrow and puts a standard insert in it, you know, is my arrow gonna be that much more efficient at killing something it may it may not be it's hard to say 
Well, I think too, it's one of those things where your opinions are oftentimes very much shaped by whatever your most recent experiences are, right? Like if you go out and you shoot a deer at 12 yards, perfect double long shot, you get a pass through and, and you're using a a small broadhead. It's like, oh man, that was, that was no problem. I want to go to a bigger broadhead now. Why not? Whereas opposite side of the spectrum, you could have been the guy who got two inches or, or six inches or whatever penetration, your arrow broke off two inches behind the head. And now you're like, how can I make the most robust arrow that's not going to break when I hit something hard? Absolutely. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're only as good as your last shot, you know, and whether that's a good shot with a, an arrow system or, like you said, you break the arrow and you're like, well, I got to find something to blame. I'm not going to blame myself. Well, the arrow <laughs> broke, so let's blame the arrow. You know, that's kind of where it's at, and it's just like, I, I ain't got nothing else to do. Why not explore to see what I can build, what I can tinker with arrow setup-wise that might give me some more confidence. Yeah. What about trad wise? You, you know, do you figure something out that you like for that? No, I got uh one, two, three, four, five. I got about 12 different brand arrows, um, different links, different spines right now. Um, and I'm trying to, with my trad, you find the weight arrow that reflects my eye for gap shooting or for shooting my natural trajectory that my eye sees. Mm -hmm. So that's more what I'm trying to key on now is finding kind of that weight that my eye sees best from seven to 40 yards um, that works with the bow setup, the draw length and weight that I have that my eye naturally sees that arc the best of. So that's been a difficult process. Gotcha. For me, I, I think the system that I used last year, the simplicity, it might not be the most robust structurally wise, um, but simplicity is really good for the system. It's just like a standard diameter arrow, 350 spine is what I was using full length. And then it's got the web insert system, the acerts. So there's those things where you just, you glue the little aluminum piece inside the front of the arrow. And then you stick the broadhead in. There's no threads on that little piece. Uh, the threads are on the nut that goes in from the backside of the arrow. Oh, okay, yeah. So maybe it's not, I shouldn't say the simplest thing. But once <laughs> you put that nut in, you screw the nut on the back of the arrow. You can tighten that nut at any broadhead orientation. So you can glue your inserts in or those little rings in however you want. And then you can align your broadheads exactly how you want them. If you put on two blades, you can align them all vertical. You can align them all horizontal. It's no problem. You put on three blades, you can do it however you want. So that aspect of it has made it nice because you can I can change around broadheads, do whatever I want there, and still be able to maintain the same uh, type of alignment. And since it's a standard diameter arrow, I mean, it's still fairly robust in and of itself. Right. Standard diameter arrows tend to be because there's no, right, the whole broadhead shank is inside the shaft. So it's like I probably will because I still have like over six of those arrow systems <laughs> in place. I'll probably just keep using those until I start running low and then figure out what I'm going to try next. Yeah. It, with the adjusting of the, the broadhead orientation for traditional bows, that's huge. Uh, especially for me, I don't necessarily look at the front of my arrow, but as I'm drawing my bow back, if that broadhead is in my field of view, screws with my head um, so I have to have my broadheads at a certain orientation um, and it mostly has to do with the cant of my bow especially shooting 
with fingers instead of with a thumb. So it really, I can remember times that when I had, when I shot my self bow, where I would have knocked the arrow backwards on my string, not knowing it. And then as I tried to draw on a deer, that blade of the broadhead was in my field of view. So it messed with my sight picture basically. So I would have to let down, flip that arrow around and then draw back again. Um, and it, it's amazing at how that little bit of, you know, impact in my field of view really could affect my shot sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if you're doing some kind of aiming system too, I think. Yeah, if you're using point having on cons- or... Right, having a consistent looking aiming point, basically. It's like, what would what would you do in a compound if you drew back and your pin was a different shape every time? Yeah, or the pin you below know. it was four inches, an inch longer, three quarters of an inch longer. You're going to be like, that. that's something right here doesn't look right. You know, what's, you know, if all your pins were kind of in a, a diagonal shape, so each one was slightly longer than the other one, you're probably going to cant your bow a little more to make them vertically level so that you can be like, oh, okay, I'm level. But in all reality, you're not. So it would really throw with your, your visual perception of what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think weight-wise, too, with the trad, I'll probably stay above 550, I think, indefinitely. I think when I first started off, I was using, like, 10 grains per pound, which at 55 pounds is about right. But I think, like, if I were to go lower in poundage, I would still want to stick probably with that at least 550-grain arrow, if not more. Yeah, right now that's where I'm at 245 up front on most all of these arrows and then depending on whether it's a, a full metal jacket or like this victory um vap you know depending on what that is but i'm just trying to find the the weight that my eye sees best and then i'll try to once i find that weight i'll adjust arrow grain per inch to figure out what i need to get to get that so that's been the difficult part of it um but i'm sh- still shooting the thumb at like 29 and a half inches and 47 pounds I think is what it is Uh, but the one thing I'm going to look at is going to longbow limbs over recurve limbs on it and trying that that's what I did last year (laughs) I I liked it but I mean for me like there wasn't a huge difference like they're pretty similar right just I couldn't notice much of a difference in how they shot maybe one was marginally quieter than the other but i didn't think it was a big difference at least on my bow just in all all the traditional bows i've ever shot i felt like i've shot a slightly reflex deflex long bow better than a recurve altogether just something about the way the limbs feel during the draw maybe i just i feel more confident with that style of of profile kind of the gold wing you know reflex deflex and a long bow compared to a, a shorter recurve yeah, I like that style just visually too. I think it looks appealing. It looks simple. Yeah, it looks like a long bow. It's the basic. String doesn't string yeah. doesn't touch the limbs, but yet it's got probably a little bit more oomph than a just a standard D shaped long bow. Yeah, you get that little preloaded reflex part of it in there, so you know you get that that increased thump compared to the you know full fledged recurve, which bends a lot in the tips. And the final little bit of the draw. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. That's 
I think that's a pretty good summary of kind of my thoughts on my system this year and what I think I'm going to try next year. And I think you as well. Do you have anything else to add? No, I think it's just um, more time on the on the range. Obviously, it's hard, you know, living in an apartment, not being able to shoot out the back door when I need to, having to go to a public range to shoot or somewhere like that. So it just takes longer from that aspect than if I had the ability just to shoot out my back door as much as I could. That'll wrap up this episode. Make sure to stay tuned for all the ATA coverage that we're going to have between Dan and myself with the Sportsman's Nation. Follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram. Make sure you subscribe to us on whatever app or website you typically would listen to your podcasts on. I know we're all really excited to get kind of the latest and greatest of what's going to be coming out in 2019. So definitely stay tuned.